Welcome. We're going to be in Mark chapter 3 for this video. And what I want you to do is I, I want you to maybe kind of get out your Bibles and, and sort of take a look at some of the things that happen in, in Mark 2 uh, to, to be able to lay this foundation for Mark 3. Because if you remember, the last thing that happened in the previous chapter was that Jesus made this statement to these people who had a problem with, with his own disciples and what they were doing on the Sabbath. Jesus said at the very end, the Sabbath was made for man, not man for the Sabbath. So the Son of Man is Lord even of the Sabbath. Well, it's not by accident that the next chapter, what we're going to be in, Mark 3, it starts off with a Sabbath issue. So let's uh, dive into the text together and let's see uh, that people are still going to be having a problem with what Jesus does on the Sabbath. Mark chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Another time Jesus went into the synagogue, and a man with a shriveled hand was there. Some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus, so they watched him closely to see if he would heal him on the Sabbath. Jesus said to the man with the shriveled hand, Stand up in front of everyone. Then Jesus asked him, Which is lawful on the Sabbath, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they remained silent. He looked around at them in anger and deeply distressed at their stubborn hearts, said to the man, Stretch out your hand. He stretched it out, and his hand was completely restored. Then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. Okay, so the first story that we come here in Mark chapter 3 is one that is dealing with the Sabbath day. Several of these miracles that uh, and, and different things that Jesus did um, people had a problem with it. The, the religious leaders had a problem with what Jesus was doing, um, typically because he was working on the, or what they thought of as him working on the Sabbath. I find it so weird that he can heal people and then they actually consider that work. But anyways, that just kind of goes to show you they're really trying to get him. In fact, it says in verse two, it says a couple of things I want you to notice. Um, it says that they were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So they watched him closely. But I also want you to notice that it's not everybody. It says that some of them were looking for a reason to accuse Jesus. So some of them had this issue, not all of them. That's why whenever you see like Paul and maybe some of the other uh, apostles, when they speak of some of, uh, of these things, they don't always speak about Pharisees and Sadducees and stuff like that in a negative light. It's not every single person that belonged to that group, but it is some of them. And because of that, you know, of course, we kind of think about the Pharisees, the Sadducees, uh, the uh, we have different uh, experts of the law. That's another one. I was trying to think about what's another category that shows up. Um, but yeah, we think about those as kind of negative. It's really some of those people. And some of those people, they were trying to accuse Jesus. They were wanting to trap him in something. That's why Jesus responds with this question to them in verse four. You know, what, what's lawful on the Sabbath? And of course, the answer, he says, you know, to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill. Everybody knows the right answer. But I mean, who's going to speak up and say anything because you're trying to trap him. But all he's doing is he's just making a lot of sense. And that's Jesus's response right here. And he's actually upset with him. In fact, it says right here in verse five uh, that uh, that that he was uh, he had anger and also that he was deeply distressed because of their stubborn hearts. You know, because of all this. He had just had enough, and then he heals this man. And whenever he heals this man, that just puts some of them over the top. In fact, in verse six, it says that the Pharisees, um, then the Pharisees went out and began to plot with the Herodians how they might kill Jesus. 
they're already seeking to kill Jesus. You know, they've gone beyond just, okay, how can we silence him? They can't silence him. They don't have a way to do that. So right now they're just trying to, to figure out, okay, how can we actually end this guy's life? They've had enough. They're willing, in fact, the Pharisees are willing to work with the Herodians. Now, I'm not going to get into much detail about the, the history behind this, these two groups, but these two groups typically did not get along together well at all. Because of that, it's amazing that the Pharisees, they dislike Jesus so much that they're willing to side with the Herodians in order to kill him. Well, that's where they've come. I mean, the, these Pharisees, they're no longer willing to listen to reason. They're no longer willing to listen to Jesus. They're just trying to find out some way to kill him. But Jesus' ministry, of course, isn't stopped by this. Verses 7 through 12 of Mark 3. Jesus withdrew with his disciples to a lake, and a large crowd from Galilee followed. When they heard about all he was doing, many people came to him from Judea, Jerusalem, Idumea, and the regions across the Jordan and around Tyre and Sidon. Because of the crowd, he told his disciples to have a small boat ready for him to keep the people from crowding him. For he had healed many, so that those with diseases were pushing forward to touch him. Whenever the impure spirits saw him, they fell down before him and cried out, You are the Son of God. But he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. So you look at this passage, you find out that, yes, the Pharisees are trying to team up with the Herodians, and yes, they're trying to put an end to Jesus' ministry. But Jesus' ministry, it's growing so much. We see in verse 7 that there's this large crowd that is coming out to, to follow him. And because of that, Jesus is even, you know, he's withdrawing. We, we see that constantly in any of the Gospels, that Jesus kind of pulls himself back, sometimes with his own disciples, and he just tries to get away for a little bit. And he's trying to get away because these people are just crowding in so much because he's healed some of them. Verse 10 tells us that he actually healed many of them. And because of that, the other ones were wanting to be healed too. And they were kind of coming in and they were trying to be able to touch him uh, and to be able to, to be cleansed as well. So he is still healing people. Um, we still see that he has power. He has authority over, over everything. We see that he's got this power over nature. He's healing people. Verse 11 tells us that he has the authority over even uh, the, the spirits. He talks about here that impure spirits, whenever they saw him, they fall down and they say that you are the son of God. Jesus can't have that. This is already, we, we've seen this before, but you know we see it again right here, that he gave them strict orders not to tell others about him. He doesn't want these impure spirits to be the, the, the messengers of this gospel. No, he doesn't want to take that away from people who are genuinely following him. That's our job today. It's our job to openly proclaim that Jesus is the Son of God and the gospel message that goes along with that. And since Jesus is, is making sure that, uh, you know, he is silencing these impure spirits, he actually does call for himself some of these disciples. This is where we get this group of the 12 apostles. Verses 13 through 19. Jesus went up on a mountainside and called to him those he wanted, and they came to him. He appointed 12 that they might be with him and that he might send them out to preach and have authority to drive out demons. These are the 12 he appointed. Simon, to whom he gave the name Peter, James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John. To them he gave the name uh, Boanerges, which means sons of thunder. Andrew, Philip, Bartholomew, Matthew, Thomas, James, son of Alphaeus, Thaddeus. Simon the Zealot, 
and Judas Iscariot, who betrayed him. We get a little bit of information about some of those uh, those characters among those 12, but you know, really for the most part, we don't get a whole lot of information about a large number of the, the 12. We get a few things here, but he did appoint 12. He appointed 12 in order to, to be able to do some things specifically as what verse uh, 14 and 15 says, the reason for him choosing those 12 was that he might send them out to preach. So that's one of the goals that they had. And, you know, by the way, at least some of, of what we are called to do, it overlaps with what the apostles were called to do. Now, the apostles had a special place. You know, they weren't just the disciples. They were this really close group and they were called out. They were sent out for a specific reason. That's what the word apostle means. It means that one who is sent out. And these are the 12 apostles, the ones who were sent out. Their mission, their job was to preach. That's one of the first things that's stated right here. But then verse 15 also tells us that it's more than just to preach. It's also uh, part of their job was to have authority. What type of authority? The authority to drive out demons. So the reason why Jesus appointed the 12 was so that they would preach and so they would have authority. These are the same types of things that even Jesus himself is already uh, demonstrating. He's already uh, shown that, that he can preach, that he has this power, and that he has this authority over everything. Now he is kind of delegating that power, delegating some of that authority, and allowing these apostles to be able to do the same types of things that he's been doing. And of course, some of these same things uh, that, uh, that even the apostles were doing has been handed down to us too. It's now our job to do these uh, at least similar types of things is what the apostles and most certainly the same types of things that the uh, the early church was called to do and the same types of things the disciples were called to do. I do want to point out something about this group of 12. You have this group of 12 and, and we know a few things about them. We even have a few things uh, that's mentioned right here. I wish I could tell you more about uh, verse 17 on, on why he called the sons of Zebedee, why he gave them the name sons of thunder. But honestly, I just don't really know. I mean, I, I've heard of a few different uh, explanations for that, but you know, that's some bit of information that for one reason or another, Mark wanted to include within his gospel. Uh, maybe that meant a little bit more to his original audience. And, and now, you know, there's different ideas as to, to why people think they were called sons of thunder. Obviously, they were known for something. You know, these two sons, they were known for something. But we do get a little bit more information about some of the others. Like in verse 18, one of these characters that we that we see is Matthew. Now we have already been introduced to him uh, in the previous chapter, but he went by the name Levi then, and he was a tax collector. I brought up at that point, and I guess I'm gonna kind of bring it up again right here, that Matthew, because he's a tax collector, he would have been employed by the Roman government. Now, not everybody likes the, the Romans. In fact, you have another uh, man listed in this group in verse 18, Simon the Zealot. Now, maybe he was just very zealous. Maybe he was just very energetic, and, and maybe that's why he's called zealot. However, that term zealot could also refer to, and likely in this case, I think it does, refer to someone who was really seeking to overthrow the Roman government. So here within this group of 12 men, Jesus specifically chose this guy who was employed by Rome and this guy who is seeking to overthrow Rome. And guess what? They at least somewhat, because of their their uh, devotion to following Jesus Christ, they're somewhat able to at least get along and to be able to move forward in all of this. I think there's a lesson that we need to learn in that, that sometimes we might disagree with, with certain ways that other Christians uh, might believe about things or, or you know, do things in, you know, in their own personal lives. 
But when it comes to our spiritual lives, we need to be on the same page. We need to be unified and we need to be willing to follow Jesus Christ, even if we do come from slightly different backgrounds and maybe have different ideas as to, to how things should look in the future and how maybe our, our culture or our world should look. We can still get along with people because of this bond that we have through Jesus Christ. How deep does this bond go? Well, let's keep reading. We see some interesting things here. Verses 20 and 21, we're going to find out something about the family of Jesus. You know, I know that we don't really focus on Jesus' family so, so much, but we do get glimpses here and there. This is one of those glimpses. Then Jesus entered a house, and again, a crowd gathered so that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. Sadly, Jesus' family, they were opposed to him. Now, I would like to think that his parents weren't included in this. I, I don't think that this would be Mary or Joseph. In fact, Joseph is only described early on in the gospel accounts, and it's, it's uh, thought by many people that, that at some point uh, during Jesus' life, uh, Joseph already, um, he died because we don't see him at the cross. And it's kind of interesting that he's he's never really mentioned in that. We also do get this this little bit of information at the cross. Maybe I'm getting a little off topic, but I do think it's important. Um, we do see at the foot of the cross that Mary uh, is told to be taken care of by John and John is told to take care of Mary. So we, we see this whole thing that, that they have a, a family connection right there. Um, that would not have needed to have been done unless that something had happened to Joseph, you know? Uh, and I mean, you know, you might be able to say, well, well perhaps he would uh, be someone who, who fell away and stopped believing in Jesus. I mean, maybe so, but I would like to think that, that the family that God handpicked, um, at least at some point or another in their lives, they would remain faithful to God. So I would like to think that Joseph uh, remained faithful to God's plan and that, uh, that he became uh, some type of a follower of Jesus before um, he died. Mary, we do get several different indicators that she followed Jesus all along the way. So I have a hard time with thinking that this would be his parents. But we are told in other passages that his brothers didn't believe and they had problems with him. You know, to them, think about it like this. If you had a family member who was doing things that was a little different and, you know, kind of maybe you actually thought that they were crazy. I mean, if, if they are saying that they're the son of God, and that they're saying that, you know, they are God. What's a logical conclusion? Uh, they thought that Jesus is crazy. And yeah, that's a possibility. But obviously, you and I, we, we believe that Jesus was exactly who he claimed to be. And his brothers eventually did believe that. But right here, apparently they didn't. And they actually make the statement, he is out of his mind. Could you believe what that does to Jesus? To have your own family turn on you like this. Well, this is the situation that Jesus lived in. But it gets worse than that. You know, it's, it's one thing whenever you are, are betrayed and all by your own family, but, but it does get worse in some of these accusations that people start to accuse him of. So you start to see that, that Jesus really had to endure all of these trials, all, all of these, these different hardships during his, his uh, relatively short life. But let's keep reading because now we're gonna get into a very interesting passage uh, that, uh, well, let's just get into it. Let's look at verses 22 through 30 now. I know this might be a slightly weird place that we're stopping, but we're stopping this because now this deals with 
some of these religious leaders. We looked at Jesus' family. Now we're looking at the religious leaders, and we're going to end on a short passage at the end of this chapter uh, with a little bit more about Jesus' family. But now let's find out, okay, the religious leaders. We already saw in this chapter some of them were wanting to kill Jesus. Okay, now what do we see? Beginning in verse 22. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub. By the prince of demons, he is driving, driving out demons. So Jesus called them over to him and began to speak to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Truly, I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they uttered. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an impure spirit. Okay, let's pause right here and let's let's kind of look at some of these things because there's there's a lot that's stated. Uh, let's notice this group that's saying it here. Verse 22, it's the teachers of the law. These are the people who they most certainly should know the law uh, front and back, inside and out. They should know the law. And what they are saying is that Jesus gets his power by the prince of demons, that Jesus is Satan. And, and that just doesn't make any sense to Jesus. And that's why he kind of starts using some of these, these parables. And he makes this statement, you know, how can Satan be divided against himself? And some of these statements about how a kingdom if it's divided against itself, that kingdom is, is uh, will not be able to stand. And then he goes into a house and then he goes into Satan. Uh, but, you know, I can't help but but think that the uh, the Kentucky state motto, I know this might seem like a weird thing, but maybe you've been thinking about it anyways. Um, that Kentucky state motto, it comes down to this, this that uh, united we stand and divided we fall. You know, I can't help but think that there's a connection here to this passage because this is the same thing that Jesus is saying. That look, if we're going to be divided about these things, or or if any kingdom or any house is divided about uh, things, then it's going to end up falling. And he's trying to get them to to recognize that they need to turn from the error of their ways and to really get on board with what God is doing in their midst. And that is sending His Son Jesus Christ and doing all the things that Jesus is is there doing in their midst. That things are changing, and these teachers of the law are not willing to accept what God is doing in their midst. We also find an interesting um, parable here in verse 27. The parable is, no one can enter a strong man's house without first tying him up. Then he can plunder the strong man's house. Now, this is one of those parables that I think that, that what we see here in this passage is that parables are not really taught to, um, they're not told to teach us some type of a moral lesson. Because from this, you know, we don't need to be taking the lesson that, okay, we need to be tying people up so that we can, we can plunder their stuff. That's not what Jesus was saying at all. But what Jesus was saying, uh, what he seems to be indicating here with this parable is that Satan needs to be bound up so that, that Jesus, uh, that, that God, through the power of Jesus right here, through the workings of Jesus Christ, can enter in and take back the things that truly uh, do actually belong to him that Satan has taken. I know this kind of a weird image, a weird parable. But yet, I think that's what we see at the, at the heart of this, is saying that Satan's not divided against himself. What we do see is Satan has a bit of power, but God has more power. And God is willing to do 
so much by sending his son to enter into Satan's territory, so to speak, to enter in and to take back the possessions, to take back the people that Satan has under his control. But God is, is taking those back. And the only way to do that, of course, is to bind up uh, the, the strong man at first. And in this case, to bind up Satan in order to come in and to take back the things that truly do belong to God. Then we get even a stranger passage right here. I know there's a couple of kind of strange things here, but in verse 28, Jesus actually says, truly I tell you, people can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. Sounds really good right there, doesn't it? And if we could stop right there, it's just, you know, it sounds like, oh, anything and everything that we could possibly do in this life, we can be forgiven from. Sounds really good. But there is also a little bit more to that. And there's something very important to learn about forgiveness of sins. And I do want us to notice that the really verse 28, it does actually tell us and gives us a lot of hope that there can be forgiveness of these sins. In fact, he says just about every single sin there can be forgiveness from because of what God has done through Jesus Christ on the cross. But then verse 29, it tells us more to that. It says, but whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. Now, maybe your, your translation might word that a little bit different, but it, it kind of comes down to the same thing. It's a difficult passage. I, I will give you that, but I, I hopefully can maybe say a few things that will help explain it uh, and uh, so that we can understand this passage just a little bit better. It says that whoever blasphemes, okay, whenever you blaspheme, that literally means speaking against. So whenever you are speaking against and acting against the Holy Spirit, you'll never be forgiven. They are guilty of an eternal sin. So what does that mean? What, you know, people have tried to, to figure out, well, what does that mean, blaspheming the Holy Spirit? What does that mean to speak against the Holy Spirit? Well, I want to draw your attention to verse 30, because I think that you have to take in verse 30 in order to understand verse 29. We read that Jesus said this because they were saying, and the quote is, he has an impure spirit, end quote. They're talking about Jesus. They're saying that Jesus has an impure spirit. Jesus tells them, oh, you better watch out because right here, you're doing something that, that makes you guilty of speaking against the Holy Spirit. Now, how does that work? That works because what the Holy Spirit was doing in their midst was working through Jesus Christ. Everything about Jesus' life, it points toward the power, points toward that he is exactly who he has claimed to be from the very beginning. And they are actively denying this. Whenever you actively deny the works of God in your midst, that's whenever you can speak against the Holy Spirit. They're literally saying that the very things that God is doing through Jesus Christ, that those are being done by Satan. We need to take caution about that. We need to make sure that we recognize the things that God is doing in our own day, in our own midst. And we need to make sure that we stray uh, that we stay far away from this type of sin. Blaspheming the Holy Spirit, let's not speak against what the Holy Spirit is doing. Let's embrace what the Holy Spirit is doing during our day. Is it going to be different? Well, yes. The Holy Spirit doesn't always work the same way throughout history. And the Holy Spirit works different today than what he did even in the Gospels. But yet the Holy Spirit is still active. He, he is still uh, constantly doing things in the world around us. And he has been from the beginning of time. We see him 
very, very early on, even in the, the creation story, we see the Holy Spirit is already moving uh, during uh, the midst of creation. So what does it mean to blaspheme the Holy Spirit? Well, Jesus says one way to blaspheme the Holy Spirit is to say that Jesus has an impure spirit. We need to make sure that we recognize what God did and what the Holy Spirit did through Jesus Christ. We need to also recognize what he is doing during our own day. Then we can stay far away from this blaspheming of the Holy Spirit. Remember verse 28, though. People can be forgiven all their sins and every slander they utter. It's a wonderful word of hope that's mixed with this word of warning. We need to take them both to heart and we need to act accordingly. So that's what, what this passage is. And that's what the, the religious leaders are, are doing, the teachers of the law. And these are some very serious accusations that they are accusing Jesus of. You know, I mean, accusing him of being Satan. Whenever you look in the law, I mean, this this thing about leading the people astray. Um, whenever you lead the people astray like this, uh, that can be guilty of, of death. I think that's really kind of the logic is that they are trying to use, the teacher of the law that they're trying to use, but they're not even aware. Or perhaps they don't care that they are speaking against the Holy Spirit and his actions during their day. Okay, so I, I think that I've kind of mentioned that maybe even a, a few too many times in this, but I wanted to, to explain a little bit more about what it means to blaspheme the Holy Spirit and what Jesus is truly saying and, and teaching us in this passage. So I told you we looked at something about Jesus' family. Now we looked at something about the, the uh, teachers of the law. Now let's go back to the family of Jesus and let's look at one final passage before we end this chapter. Verses 31 through 35. Then Jesus' mother and brothers arrived. Standing outside, they sent someone to call uh, in to call him. A crowd was sitting around him, and they told him, Your mother and brothers are outside looking for you. Who are my mother and my brothers? he asked. Then he looked at those seated in the circle around him and said, Here are my mother and my brothers. Whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. Notice what Jesus says right here. We already found out in verses 20 and 21 that that he was rejected from his own family. His own family was saying, look, he is out of his mind. So whenever his family comes back again, to us, it kind of looks like he's being a little bit rude. And he's like, you know, well, what is that to me that my family's outside? Well, last time his family was around him uh, in, in Mark's gospel, last time his family was around him, they were saying, you're crazy. So right here, what Jesus is saying is, who is my family? And he gives the answer. He looks around and he, I can't help but you know, think that he's also kind of motioning in verse, 30, in verse 35, whoever does God's will is my brother and sister and mother. That means that you and I are most certainly welcome to be a part of God's family, of Jesus's family, whenever we do the will of our Heavenly Father. Let's make sure that we do that. Let's make sure that we do our Father, Father's will so that we can be part of the family of Jesus Christ.